Psalm 110. Of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd be grateful if you could keep that page open so we can all continue looking at those verses during the sermon. Let's now bow our heads and pray for God's help. A prayer based on Psalm 119, verse 18. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Here in church on a Sunday among God's people, it can be easy to picture ourselves sailing smoothly through the coming week serving Jesus wholeheartedly day after day, obeying his commands, praying, reading his word, speaking about him to people who aren't yet Christians if we have the opportunity, encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ and serving him in still other ways. But as we all know, in practice when Monday morning comes, it is hard to serve Jesus day by day. It feels like a fight, a fight we don't always win. The writers of the New Testament are well aware of that. In Ephesians chapter 6, Christians are told to put on the full armor of God, including the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. That's fight language, battle language. In 2 Corinthians 10, we're told to take every thought captive, to make it obey Christ. That's also battle language. Taking captives is a wartime thing to do. Colossians 4 verse 12 describes prayer as wrestling. Galatians 5 says that the Spirit of God who lives within believers is in conflict with the sinful nature that all believers still have. Conflict. There's a fight going on. To live as a Christian according to the New Testament is to take up arms and enter into a spiritual battle. Psalm 110 can strengthen us for this fight. The Psalms, the book of Psalms, is the Bible's songbook, and Psalm 110 is like a marching song for God's people, a battle hymn for Christ's servants. With God's help, 
this psalm will stir up our hearts and make us more willing to enter into battle for Jesus, our King. The psalm is made up of two sections, each of which begin with a divine announcement. We're going to follow the psalm's structure in this sermon, and the title we'll give the first section, which is verses 1 through 3, is The King Who Rules From Heaven. The King Who Rules From Heaven. In verse 1, there are two lords. The first lord is the creator God. There's another lord in verse 1, a person who David, the writer of the psalm, describes as my lord. As we heard in our first Bible reading, Jesus once got into a discussion about this psalm, Psalm 110, and Jesus identifies that second lord in verse 1 as the Christ or Messiah. The big point Jesus makes in that discussion we heard is that even King David pays homage to the Messiah. Even David himself calls him my Lord. By calling the Messiah Lord, David gave the Messiah seniority over himself. And that's a remarkable thing for David, that great king, to do. When David's son Solomon was enthroned as king at the end of David's life, David didn't give him seniority over himself. He didn't allow Solomon to start giving him orders. No, in 1 Kings chapter 2, David is still giving commands to Solomon, the newly enthroned king. David holds on to his own seniority. But when it comes to the Messiah, David knows his proper place. He calls the Messiah, my Lord. There must be something about this Messiah that sets him apart from all the other kings of Israel, including David himself. And the next few lines of the psalm tell us what it is that makes the Messiah different, according to the rest of verse 1 and the start of verse 2. This future king, this Messiah, will sit at the right hand of God and rule from there. He'll rule from heaven. No wonder King David pays homage to him. David ruled from earth, but the Messiah rules from heaven. From our position in salvation history, we can see how verse 2 has been fulfilled over the past 2,000 years. Verse 2 is a perfect summary of the last 2,000 years of world history. David is speaking in verse 2 about the exalted Messiah, in other words, Jesus at the right hand of God, and he says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, which is where Jesus' reign began. But the Bible also uses Zion as another name for heaven, where Jesus is ruling from now. And the way David pictures it, it's as if Jesus has a scepter, one of those ceremonial royal rods, usually made of gold or silver. David pictures this mighty scepter being extended, stretched out, from heaven. 
It's as if Jesus' royal scepter stretches out from heaven to touch nation after nation after nation on the map of the world. And that is exactly what has happened over the past 2,000 years. Jesus' influence, his rule as king, has been extended from the time of his ascension onwards as people across the globe hear the good news and put their trust in him. What's more, that has happened in the midst of Jesus' enemies, just as it says in the second line of verse 2. Ruling in the midst of your enemies is a difficult feat to accomplish. But that's what Jesus has done and is doing now. Think of the many nations opposed to King Jesus, past and present. In those nations, we have seen Jesus' church gaining a foothold, surviving, even flourishing, despite the opposition to them. For 20 centuries, Jesus has ruled in the midst of his enemies. But that's not how things will go on forever, as we'll see by the end of the psalm. We're still in the first section of the psalm, and we've seen that God's king rules from heaven in the midst of his enemies. We've seen from our position in history that his mighty scepter has indeed extended throughout the earth. But how do we now fit in to his rule here in New York City today? Verse 3 answers that question. It says, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. That's us. There in verse 3. Your troops will be willing. Other translations say your people instead of your troops. But the situation is a battle situation according to the next line. So that's probably why this translation says your troops. The rest of that, uh, the next line, no, the rest of that line, sorry, your troops will be willing. The rest of that line literally says your troops will be voluntary offerings. Your troops will be willing, our translation, your people will be voluntary offerings, an alternative translation. These servants of the king are so dedicated to him that they freely, gladly offer themselves in his service. Your people will be voluntary offerings. At the start of the sermon, we thought about the daily battles that we face as Christians, the battle to live for Jesus, the battle to serve him faithfully through our acts of obedience. Verse 3 shows us the attitude we should have as we engage in those battles. Jesus is the king who gave his own life on the cross so that we could be purified for his service. He took away all our sins, receiving the punishment for them when he died on the cross. Then he rose from the dead and in fulfillment of Psalm 110, he ascended into heaven. He did all of that for us. We can win the small battles because our king has won the big battles. 
and in view of what he has done for us, we should offer ourselves eagerly as voluntary offerings. What a loving king Jesus is. What a good king Jesus is. When we think about what he's done for us, shouldn't we say to ourselves, oh, if only I had the opportunity to do something for him. Something for him, to show him my love, to please him, to live out my devotion to him. And of course, we do have the opportunity to do something for Jesus, to show him our love, to please him and live out our devotion to him. God graciously gives us multiple opportunities day after day to serve King Jesus. And God gives us the power to serve him by his Holy Spirit. Your troops will be willing. Your people will be voluntary offerings. The second half of verse 3 pictures the servants of the king as an army of beautifully dressed young people appearing in the morning as numerous as dewdrops on the earth, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. Again, that's us. If you're someone who finds it very hard to get up in the morning and you prefer casual clothes and you're not so young anymore, you may think you're not included in verse 3, but you are. It is a poetic way of describing Jesus' servants. He has dressed us in garments of righteousness. It says in Isaiah chapter 61, we're new creations. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, we've been renewed, born again, rejuvenated by his spirit. And we take our place among a global multitude like dewdrops on the earth. So we do fit that picture in the second half of verse 3. That's what all of Jesus' followers really are like in his sight as we live for him. When we fall short of that vision... It's not by staying in bed at dawn or dressing casually or being middle-aged. It's when we drop out of the battle. Disobeying our king. Refusing to give ourselves to his service as a voluntary offering. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, you can live that verse 3 life by the power of his spirit. You can win the small battles because your king has won the big battles. I wonder what would it mean in practice for you in particular to live out that verse 3 life during the coming week. It's time for us to move on to the second half of the psalm, verses 4 through 7. The title we'll give this second section is The Priest Who Comes Down to Earth. The Priest who comes down to earth. And since we've already done most of our application, we'll spend less time on this section than the first. The section begins with another announcement about the Messiah, the King who David calls my Lord. In verse 4, God says to the Messiah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That verse is a Bible verse that the earliest Christians found immensely valuable in the decades 
after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. At that time, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. Animal sacrifices were still being offered. And we know from the New Testament that some of Jesus' followers in those early decades were tempted to go back to the old way of worship, getting right with God by offering animal sacrifices at the temple. It seemed more real somehow, more effective than trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. After all, hadn't God himself established the Levitical priesthood? Hadn't God decreed that priests from the tribe of Levi should act as go-betweens, bringing him and the people together through the offering of sacrifices at the temple? Hadn't God decreed that those things should happen? It was tempting for some of Jesus' earliest followers to return to that familiar way of relating to God. There's a letter in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, that deals very directly with that temptation to trust in the temple sacrifices all over again. And the writer of the book of Hebrews turns to Psalm 110, verse 4, to make the case that Jesus is the only priest we need to bring us to God. We're not dependent on the Levitical priesthood to do that anymore, because we have a priest from a different order, the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek lived in the time of Abraham. He was king of Salem, short for Jerusalem. And as verse 4 says, as well as being a king, he was a priest. A priest king ruling from Jerusalem. It's not hard to see the parallel between Melchizedek and Jesus. According to the book of Hebrews, Jesus serves us as our priest by taking his own blood shed at the cross to heaven, where he brings it into the presence of God the Father. Listen to Hebrews 9 verse 24. Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. You can tell from that verse how important it was for Jesus to be exalted and sit at God's right hand. He had to ascend to heaven so that he could bring his atoning blood into the true most holy place. Here's Hebrews 9 verse 24 again. Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, the temple in Jerusalem. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. He's the priest we need, the go-between who reconciles humanity with God by his own sacrificial blood. But the next few verses in the second section of the psalm teach us that Jesus won't stay in heaven. He won't stay where he is. A day will come when the priest king will return to earth. And on that day, he'll no longer rule in the midst of his enemies, that line in verse 2. No. Instead, on that day, he'll put an end to his enemies. The Christian 
rapper Shai Lin has a song called Exalted that is all about Psalm 110. It's like a rap version of Psalm 110. It's an excellent song. Here's what Shai Lin says in the song about verses 5 and 6. This is his version, if you like, of verses 5 and 6. Christ will bring all of his enemies to a hideous closure. The text is warning you. The Lord is a warrior. But for all who repent and believe, there's plenty more in store for you. That's exactly right. Those verses are warning verses. They bring a terrifying warning. Years ago when I was a young Christian, a non-Christian friend of mine called Alex, a very clever guy, said to me, and there were other people listening into the conversation, he said, so what you're saying to me is that God has a gun to my head. He made it sound ridiculous for God to threaten people with destruction unless they come to him. So what you're saying to me is that God has a gun to my head, Alex said. I don't remember what I said in response. I just remember feeling one foot tall. It seemed wrong what he was saying. It didn't seem right for God to threaten people in that way. But if I could go back in time to the moment when Alex said that, I'd reply, that's not how I would put it. I'd rather talk about God's loving offer of salvation. But if you are asking whether God's righteous judgment is a threat to you, the answer is yes. If you're asking whether God's righteous judgment is a threat to you, if you keep shutting him out, the answer is yes. That is part of the message of Psalm 110. God plans to live forever with his people. He cannot allow rebels against him to live in that coming kingdom. They have to be taken away. In the New Testament, Jesus himself speaks about the eternal punishment of the wicked in a place he himself calls hell. He speaks of a place of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If there's someone listening to this sermon today as a non-Christian, perhaps someone here today or someone listening online, please treat verses 5 and 6 as loving warnings, like the sirens that wail out before a tidal wave rolls in. It's very good when those sirens are installed in a stretch of coastline that's at risk. And it's good that these warning verses, verses 5 and 6, are in the Bible. A day is coming when God's priest king will condemn everyone who rebelliously goes their own way instead of coming to him for salvation. So come to him without delay. Put your trust in him and receive the eternal life he lovingly offers. The psalm ends with verse 7. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. When does a warrior, like the warrior we've been thinking about in the previous verses, when does a warrior drink from a brook beside the way? It happens when he's 
chasing his enemies, pursuing them after they have fled from the battlefield. Verse 7 is another way of saying that the rebels won't escape. The Bible commentator Derek Kidner says of verse 7, we are left with the picture of the warrior following up his victory, pausing only to renew his strength and press on to complete the rout. But there's more to verse 7 than that point alone. It also tells us that the priest king's final victory will be won here on earth. Earth is where you have brooks by the side of the way. Earth is where you kneel down to drink from those brooks. The priest king's final victory will be won here on earth. We might assume, without verse 7, that he would win his victory with perhaps thunderbolts from heaven. But verse 7 confirms he'll win it on earth. And that's good news for us, for his people, because we were made to live on earth, and it's good to see that our king is returning to live among us, our priest king. From that day onward, living for him will no longer be a battle against the thorns and thistles of this fallen world. Living for him will no longer be a spiritual battle against those who oppose him. It will no longer be a spiritual battle against our own sinful nature. When Jesus returns, all our battle tears will be wiped away from our eyes. But until that day comes, we need to press on with the fight, with the conflict, with the battle, serving our King as voluntary offerings, winning the small battles by his power because he has won the big battles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for everything that your Son Jesus, our Priest King, has done for us. Especially we thank you for his death upon the cross, where he shed the blood that he now shows to you in heaven for our redemption. Keep our Lord in our thoughts, Father. Would we love him? Would we desire to show our love for him through service? Help us to offer ourselves to him voluntarily, eager to please him. Strengthen us for the battle, we pray. And by your power, Heavenly Father, would we win these battles and bring glory to our Lord Jesus. Amen.